0: On his first trip overseas, President Biden tries to turn the page with America's allies. The United States is back. But the biggest challenge lies ahead, a summit with Vladimir Putin. Secretary of State Antony Blinken will join me. And stuck in neutral? While the president is out of town, his priorities at home run into roadblocks as some Democrats grow tired of waiting. Can they deliver on their promises? House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez join me exclusively. Plus, the rule of law. Former President Trump's Justice Department secretly seized data from House Democrats.
1: It's such a body blow to our democracy.
0: Just how far-reaching was this effort by the Justice Department? Hello, I'm Dana Bash in Washington, where the state of our union is trying to mend fences and build bridges. As President Biden is welcomed back to the club at the G7 summit in Europe, he is also preparing for a closely watched summit with Russian President Vladimir Putin as tensions between the two countries continue to rise. The president will take questions from reporters this hour. We will bring that press conference to you live when it happens. In the meantime, the president's priorities here at home, from infrastructure to voting rights, have run smack into the reality of a 50-50 Senate. And late this week, a stunning new revelation prompted an uproar on Capitol Hill and beyond. We learned that the Trump Justice Department seized cell phone data from the now former president's political enemies, their families, including members of Congress. And joining me now exclusively is the House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi. Thank you so much. It's nice Good to morning. see you in person as we come out of, uh, out of the pandemic. I want to start where I just left off uh, and uh, the news about the Justice Department during the Trump administration. Subpoenaed Apple for data from Democratic members of the House Intelligence Committee, their staff, uh, some of their families, So do you know how many members had their data subpoenaed, any subpoenaed for you or from you or your staff?
2: Well, good morning. morning. Uh, Congratulations to you on the show. And uh, before I answer that, I just want to say I'm wearing orange because this is the color of gun violence prevention. Uh, Last night, while we were having a moment of silence for those who had 49 people who were victims of the pulse assault. Uh, other mass shootings were happening across the country. So as we talk about all of these issues, about infrastructure and about commission and about Mm -hmm. data mining and the rest, every day, every morning, every night, we are not forgetting these victims. When I visited Pulse at the time of the shooting, the families came together and said, stop this from happening. When they visited Washington following that horrible thing. They said, stop this from happening for other people's families to go through what we're going. That was from the families and then some of the victims who survived that. So again, for us, we are not going away until we can get legislation passed. We have in the House, hopefully in the Senate, it's bipartisan in the nation that we would have background checks to prevent guns from getting in the hands of those who should not have them. Now, will that cover everything. Mm-hmm. No, but it goes a very long way. And it prevented millions of gun purchases not to happen up until now. Now we have to expand it to include uh, internet sales and, and gun shows and the rest. And,
0: that, and you've we, done your job on that in the House. The question is you know, the 50-50 can't Senate, can't which you, we this get to. Is,
2: this is like our prayer morning and night And our actions all day. So I can't go even to talk about anything else. Understand. We're not saying that that death in these families, it just has, deaths in these families must stop. So in terms of the data mining, what the Republicans did, what the uh, administration did, the Justice Department, the leadership of the former president, goes even beyond Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon had an enemies list. This is about uh, undermining the rule of law. And for this attorneys general, Barr and Sessions, at least two, to say if they didn't know anything about it is beyond belief. So we will have to have them come under oath to testify about that. Now, how could it be that undermining the rule of law, undermining the separation of power of the executive branch and the legislative branch and having these... Uh, uh, just data mining is something new in terms of where technology has taken us, uh, but not new in terms of uh, something that should never have happened.
0: Do you think it's limited just to the members we We have? don't know
2: uh, we that's why we'll have to well of course the and inspector general's report is a, very important, but it is not a substitute for what we must do in in the Congress, and uh, I know that the Senate has called for. Uh, Some review, we will certainly have that in the House of Representatives.
0: So you said that both uh, the former Attorney General Barr and Sessions, they have said that they didn't know anything about this. So has Rod Rosenstein. Rod Rosenstein as well. Who was the Deputy Attorney General. If you don't see them voluntarily on Capitol Hill, will you subpoena them?
2: Well, let's hope that they will want to honor the rule of law. This is, uh, uh, the Justice Department has been rogue under President Trump, understand that in so many respects. This is just another manifestation of their rogue activity. The others uh, were uh, perpetrated by the attorneys general, but this is one that they claim no knowledge of. How could it be that there could be an investigation of other members in the other branch of government, and the press and the rest too? Mm -hmm. and, And the attorneys general did not know So who are these people, and are they still in the Justice Department? And, again, this is just out of the question, no matter who's president, whatever party, this cannot be the way it goes.
0: Let's turn to infrastructure. Yes. A group of five Democrats, five Republican senators, they have a deal that they say is $1.2 trillion dollars. About six hundred billion dollars in new Uh, spending—that's more than Republicans were offering, but of course, less than President Biden wanted. I know a lot of the details are still being worked out, uh, but they're also saying no new taxes. So the combination of no new taxes to pay for it and about one point two trillion—is that something in the ballpark that you would agree with?
2: I'm I'm very pleased that they came to their agreement. Of course, uh, the President of the United States is a A major factor in this, and he has said he would not support any taxes on people making under $400,000 a year, and that includes increasing the gas tax, which I think may be part of their arrangement. Well, we haven't seen it, but that was what was uh, thought to be in the plan for a source of funds. Uh, We certainly know that there's money to be had by at least making people pay their taxes. I'm not even talking about those who... uh, abuse the system. I'm just talking about those who illegally do not pay their taxes specifically. And uh, so let's see. I mean, I haven't seen it. You're you're announcing this. Uh, I do think that it is predicated on an infrastructure that is of the last century. We have to be thinking in a more forward way. We must build back better. So if this is something that can be agreed upon, I don't know how we can possibly sell it. Excuse me. (laughs) <laughs> to our caucus unless we know there's more to come. Yeah. And the more to come and building back better means having more people participate in the prosperity so, of our country. So while
0: you take Excuse a drink, me. I'll yeah. ask you this question. Mm-hmm. What I hear you saying is that this could be something you would agree to as long as you get some kind of promise for a second bite at the
2: apple. Well, as Congress works its will, we'll just see what the possibilities are this is one step. I've heard the president say, and aren't really we proud of him, what a unifier, and so proud of him uh, overseas now saying we're back. But I've heard him say with the Republicans in the room, let's figure out what we can agree on on infrastructure. Let's see if we can come to a reasonable amount of money to get that work done. But I have no intention of abandoning the rest of my vision about the better, building back better. What the, is being talked about, and this is by and large something that could have been talked about 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the future.
0: So do you have faith in Republicans? Oh, I have so. They're, yeah. That they are negotiating in good faith?
2: I, I assume uh, that the, Republic, the Democrats who are negotiating with them have faith in them. I think we always have to believe Uh, I I think we have a responsibility, let me say it a different way, to uh, find common ground if we can. But if we can't, we have to stand our ground. But we have to understand that if we can come to terms in a bipartisan way, uh, that would be, I I think, the the public wants to see that. Now, in some areas, the Republicans not only do not want to come together, they want to push back Mm -hmm. further and witness H.R. 1 and other issues we may talk about now. But infrastructure has always been bipartisan. It's never, I mean, it's always been, let's see how we can work together for our communities. Let's find agreement in the communities as to what is important. And some
0: Republicans, a lot of Republicans say that when it comes to the bricks and mortar, roads and bridges, traditional infrastructure, that's fine. But when you talk about new government programs for child care, for elderly care, that's where they say no.
2: Well, you know, I don't know. I think... uh, On the other hand, in different settings, they talk about childcare being important. Mm. And it is, and it is. And we have a very strong commitment. And our women's caucus, especially, wants us to go as big as we can on childcare, and home healthcare, and family and medical leave. All of these things that enable not just women, but people respond, dads and moms and caregivers, to be able to participate in the workforce and to honor the work that is done by caregivers, to respect what they do, to adequately train for so, it, and to pay for it.
0: So let's talk about. You mentioned HR one. Yes, uh, that is what, what we call HR one. Uh, what people H.R. should know S-1 it, as is, as it one. is it is rewriting a major uh, rewrite of uh, of the election law. It's now in the Senate. West mm-hmm. Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin says, point blank, he doesn't support it. I want to read part of an op-ed he wrote last week. He wrote, I believe that partisan voting legislation will destroy the already weakening binds of our democracy. And for that reason, I will vote against the For the People Act, which is H.R. 1. So when Democrats literally don't have one vote to spare, and you read that from Joe Manchin, how are you going to get it passed?
2: I don't give up on Joe Manchin. When he was governor and secretary of state in West Virginia, he initiated many of, uh, of the initiatives ideas that are in the uh, in the HR1 S1 mm-hmm. the For the People Act the For the People and it's not it's necessarily a rewriting it's a it's stopping now the first 300 pages of S1 the For the People Act HR1 mm-hmm. were written by John Lewis to stop the voter suppression the initiative that is in there to stop partisan uh, gerrymandering and, and redistricting is really essential for the health of our country. Uh, Democrats shouldn't be gerrymandering and Republicans shouldn't. The commission piece in there is very important, and that would be mm-hmm. new. The, uh, stopping the big, dark, special interest money from suffocating the ar- airwaves. Why do you think we cannot have climate uh, uh, language that is easy to come to agreement? Why do you think we do not have gun violence protection Uh, It's because of that big, dark money, and the public knows. It knows that that money stands in the way of good policy. And again, to give voice to small donors... And the grassroots. So
0: a lot of that is the part that Senator Manchin says that he doesn't support doing right now. Uh, you I, said that I, you don't. I
2: read the, the, yeah. uh, the op ed, and yeah. you read a part of it. Yeah. I think he left the door open. I think it's ajar. I'm, I'm not giving up. Well, I,
0: and I wanted to ask you about that because you're not just reading an op ed. You have a relationship with him. Mm-hmm. Is there something that you know that we don't know, <laughs> no. or or a lot of people in your caucus who are really upset don't know about? Joe Manchin and the possibility of getting this election reform... Well, I don't know Senate. anything
2: specific about this, but I do know that he has certain concerns about the legislation that we may be able uh, to come to terms on. Uh, so it's bridgeable? I think so. Well, re- as I said to him, I have re- read the op-ed, you left the door open. And oh, you talked about it? We're going to go right in. Oh, of, of course. Yeah. And But we were... Actually, our conversations were more about the commission mm-hmm. and in the course of that conversation, but... But uh, in any case, let's just put this in its proper place. Mm-hmm. Our democracy is at stake. What the Republicans are doing across the country, even since we wrote, this is, we've had this in the election of 2018, 100 candidates wrote and said, make for the people, H.R. 1, the first order of business. That, And now we see under the, administration, further work in the former administration, and the Republicans across the country are undermining our democracy, suppressing the vote, ignoring the sanctity of the vote, which is the basis for our uh, democracy. And so we cannot let that stand. We have to make this fight for our democracy. It isn't about Democrats or Republicans. It's not about partisanship. Forget that. It's about patriotism. So, so we must
0: pass this. Speaking of democracy, I, I've always wanted to ask you this question. You're the Speaker of the House. I know you like to stay in your lane and not cross over uh, to the Senate. But, you know, it, a lot of people in your caucus say the entire Democratic agenda is being held up
2: because of the filibuster.
0: Do you think the filibuster should go away?
2: Well, you know what? As I, as you know, I don't talk about Senate rules and I don't want them okay. messing with our rules. Just
0: wanted that. to give it a try. But, All right,
2: But <laughs> I do think that... Instead of talking about the filibuster, as I say to my members, let's talk about the issues. Mm-hmm. Gun violence prevention, climate initiatives, issues that relate to the Equality Act in this month of Pride, ending discrimination against the LGBTQ community, uh, women's, uh, the Violence Against Women Act. Name what are the issues that we care about. That's really the discussion. And what, why do we not have them? Well, that's more in, of interest to people. There are kitchen table issues about the cost of mm-hmm. prescription drugs. We want to give the secretary the, the, um, the power to negotiate for lower prices. If that, if that needs 60 votes, it might not happen.
0: So let's talk about January 6th yes. and getting to the bottom of what happened mm-hmm. there. Uh, as you well know, Senate Republicans blocked uh, your proposal for a commission, bipartisan commission to investigate. You have vowed to get answers no matter what. That's are right. you at the point where you are going to appoint a select committee to do so? Uh,
2: I, a week ago, uh, I was asked to give it another week. So I'll see by Monday if the Senate believes that they could, um, uh, those who are working in a bipartisan way can get the three more votes. We have, It would have been 57 if everyone were present and voting Three more. I, I, I've yielded on every point, except scope. Except scope. One, the number of people on the committee, subpoena, power, timetable, you name it. We've yielded because of the value of the bipartisanship that would spring from that. But I would not, they want to say, well, if we're going to investigate that, we should investigate Black Lives Matter, and people turned out after George Floyd was shot. No, that's not what this is. This is about an assault on our democracy, on our capital of the United States. The American people deserve and must have answers. We will seek the truth. We will find the truth. But we hope that we can do it with passing the commission. Okay,
0: so assuming the commission doesn't pass, are you saying by Monday, which is tomorrow, Mm -hmm. you'll announce a
2: select committee? No, I'm not going to announce anything tomorrow. I'm going to see what their response is and then review it with my It sounds like you're getting colleagues. closer to it. Well, it is an option, and everybody knows the power of the speaker to do that. So I would hope that that would motivate them to say, let's go a different place. But the question arises, what the Republicans in the Senate are so afraid of the truth. Why are they so afraid of the truth? They themselves were under assault. This Capitol, our democracy was under assault. Uh, The secretary, the uh, director of the FBI, even before in in September, testified that white supremacy and anti-Semitism, et cetera. Why
0: do you think they're afraid of the truth?
2: You'd have to ask them, but they know where the roads might lead in terms of their, some of them individually. And of course, the former president of the United States, who incited an insurrection, who incited an insurrection. Now. We had an impeachment ceremony They uh, 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 process, which I thought made the case. A number of Republicans agreed. But uh, still, I think, it, it, I think it's cowardice. And I think it's a cowardice just to oppose a former president. But it's also concern about what it says about them.
0: I want to ask you about Congresswoman Ilhan Omar.
2: Yeah. You
0: and other top House Democrats released a a pretty rare statement rebuking her for appearing to, quote, draw false equivalencies between the United States and Israel and terrorist organizations, Hamas and Taliban. She clarified. She said that uh, she was in no way equating them. But since all of that happened, she and others don't seem to be letting this go. Rashida Tlaib, uh, one of her close friends, member of your caucus, tweeted the following. Freedom of speech doesn't exist for Muslim women in Congress. The benefit of the doubt doesn't exist for mu- Muslim women in Congress. Okay, you know
2: House Democratic I, I, that's, leadership that's not should be ashamed. The, but let me just say this: yeah. we did not uh, rebuke her. We thanked, uh, acknowledged that she made a clarification. So mm-hmm. before we go too far down a path,
0: yeah, I'm. Predicate. These aren't my words. No, these understand are, that. These are your I understand caucus that,
2: members' words. No, that's a member. Yeah, that's a caucus. member. A caucus, member. A member. caucus yeah. member. Yeah. So I just wanted to get yeah, your and response I'm telling, to that. You know, no, I'm not. I'm responding that we, the the Congresswoman Omar is a valued member of our caucus. She asked her questions of the Secretary of State. Nobody criticized those about how people will be held accountable if we're not going to the International Court of Justice. That was a very legitimate question. Mm-hmm. That was not of concern. Members did become concerned when the, the uh, tweet that was put out equated the United States with the Taliban. And Hamas. Rashida
0: Talib is it, accusing you and, of policing women. And, and
2: and then she clarified it. Mm-hmm. And we thanked her for clarification. So
0: do you want people to just let it go? They, they can
2: say whatever they want. But what I'm saying is, is end of subject. She clarified. We thanked her. End of subject. What other people go out and say is up to them. But it, it is uh, what we. What happened is a reflection of the respect we have for our member when she made her questions at the hearing, but the disagreement that we have to equate the United States of America with Hamas and the Taliban.
0: Before I let you go, I want to look overseas, look ahead to this week. President Biden has a big meeting with Vladimir Putin. Uh, What do you want to see out of that uh, meeting, and, and specifically I want to go back to something that happened on the show last week. The Energy Secretary, Jennifer Granholm, said that U.S. adversaries have the capability to shut down the power grid. You have tremendous expertise yes. in intelligence. How worried are you about this? And should President Biden bring it up?
2: Well, the, I'm very proud of the fact that the president is in Europe saying we're back. Uh, we're back for climate. We're back for open society. We're open for the uh, The relationship that we've had in NATO in terms of security, 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 which is so important. And I can tell you in my meetings with all these people, most of it pre-COVID, but much of it by Zoom since Mm -hmm. then, that they are so happy that America is back and that look forward to this visit by the president. In terms of his meeting with Putin, I think that he should meet with them. They should have a line of communication and issues like cybersecurity and energy, are, of course, uh, uh, are not necessarily on the table in that meeting, uh, but are the reality that we have to deal with. And energy and cybersecurity are probably two items that may come up at that meeting, but that we have to be prepared for, whether they do or not. Now, let's just make a contrast. The president, of, former president of the United States For whatever reason, whether the Russians had personal, political, or financial uh, leverage over him, just kowtowed, catered to Putin in a way that was humiliating to the United States of America. And when when Putin hears about some of the violations of, of the rights of his own people, he laughs. This is a thug. This is a thug. But he is the... Head of a, an important state in terms of the issues you raised. Mm-hmm. president should meet with him. Uh, and I, I, uh, I think he's going to meet a very different president than one who was at the mercy of Putin.
0: Madam Speaker, I so appreciate you coming in. Again, oh, nice to see you in person uh, nice as we come you. out of the pandemic.
2: Thank you. My pleasure. Stay safe. Thank you, everyone.
0: And we are awaiting a press conference by President Biden as he wraps up the G7 summit. We're going to bring you that live when it happens. And the president's busy week continues later. He will meet with Queen Elizabeth before flying to Brussels for a NATO summit. And his foreign trip will be capped off, as we were just talking about Wednesday, with a meeting with Vladimir Putin. Joining me now is the U.S. Secretary of State, Tony Blinken. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Let me first ask about one of President Biden's key goals in this summit, uniting the Western democracies around countering China's influence, especially around the goal of building infrastructure around the world. So the White House has not said yet that the U.S. allies are on board for financial support. So do you have a deal on that? Is there money behind it? And if so, how much?
1: Well, well, first, Donna, just to take a step back, um, the president came into this, the, the, this meeting of the G7 uh, determined to show that democracies can, can deliver, deliver for their people, uh, deliver for, for people around the world. And that's exactly uh, what we've done over the last couple of days. Um, and I'll come to the specific point in a second, but uh, a commitment to a billion vaccines uh, to put shots in arms around the world, uh, that's a powerful demonstration of democracies delivering. A commitment to deal with um, and to stop financing coal-fired plants uh, and and projects around the world, the the single largest contributor to uh, emissions and to global warming. Um, Fifteen percent minimum global corporate tax, uh, making sure that countries around the world have a strong tax base to provide for their citizens, provide better uh, new markets for us as well, uh, and uh, avoid a race to the bottom. And, yes, this project to pool our resources, our, uh, to invest in low and middle income countries to get the private sector uh, to do the same uh, so that we can help them build up their, their, their infrastructure, their health care systems, uh, education, and do it in a more positive way uh, than China is doing it with its Belt and Road Initiative. So they've launched this project. Our experts are going to come together uh, over the coming months, uh, and we'll look at the resources necessary to do that. But, in, you know, individually. Uh, Our countries can only do so much when we put all of these resources together. And when we leverage the private sector, um, it's a very powerful force. And we've got an agreement to move forward on that.
0: Let's look ahead to President Biden's meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin. That's going to be on Wednesday in Geneva. I know the president plans to confront him on human rights, on Ukraine, on recent cyber attacks. How do you define success out of this meeting?
1: Donna, this is not going to be a a flip the the light switch moment. Um, What the president is going to to make clear to President Putin is that uh, we seek a more stable, predictable relationship uh, with Russia. Uh, And if so, there are areas where our interests overlap and we may be able to find ways to work together. But if Russia chooses to continue reckless and aggressive actions, we will respond forcefully as the president's already demonstrated uh, that, uh, that he would when it comes to election interference or the solar wind cyber attack or the attempt to murder Mr. Navalny with a chemical weapon. So this is a, a, a beginning of testing the, the proposition, the question of whether Russia is interested in a more stable and predictable relationship and uh, finding areas to, to work together. We're not going to get the answer uh, out of one meeting. Uh, we'll have to see what comes from that meeting. But let me say one other thing that I think is really important. Um, This meeting's not happening uh, in a vacuum. We're coming off the G7. We're coming off a NATO summit. Uh, We'll be coming off of an EU summit as well. And our leadership uh, and our engagement uh, is a very powerful force. There was a major poll that was just done that found across these countries, across these democracies, 75% of the people on average have confidence in American leadership. That's up from 17% a year ago. That means we're in a much stronger position uh, to work together with these countries militarily, diplomatically, politically economically, including when it comes to dealing with challenges posed by Russia or China.
0: So the White House says that President Biden is not going to have a joint press conference with Vladimir Putin after the summit. Is that because President Biden and Vladimir Putin are, you know, or at least President Biden is worried that there is concern that this meeting simply will not go well?
1: No, I think, uh, Donna, for for the president, the most effective way to be able to share with the free press uh, what he and and President Putin talked about uh, is to to do it in this this way. It's also an opportunity, by the way, to to sum up the the entire week, the entire trip, the the, G7, the NATO summit, the uh, the EU summit. But this is the best opportunity I have to make sure that uh, the the free press of the world uh, gets in uh, their questions and the president can can share uh, what was discussed.
0: I'm sorry. So are you saying that you're not having a joint press conference because you're worried about the Russian press being there?
1: uh, We're uh, we think that uh, having the press conference, uh, by the way, the the president, maybe even as we speak, uh, is doing a a solo press conference after the the G7. This is not exactly a rare uh, a rare occurrence, but we think it's the most effective way to be able to share uh, with uh, with the free press. Uh, what, uh, what they talked about uh, and what we're, what we're focused on uh, and to make sure that you all get a chance to ask as many questions as possible.
0: Uh, before I let you go, the U.S. military withdrawal from Afghanistan is proceeding rapidly. There are growing calls from Congress and other uh, forces to evacuate Afghans who helped the U.S. during this very long war. So yes or no, is the administration planning an evacuation of those people?
1: evacuation is the wrong word. We're determined to make good uh, on our obligation to those who helped us, who put their lives on the line, put their families' lives on the line, working with our military, working with our diplomats. And there's a special uh, program uh, for so-called special immigrant visas that give them a a dedicated channel to apply uh, to come to the United States. We have put in uh, significant resources into making sure that that program can work fast uh, and work effectively so that we can process any requests that we get uh, for, these, um, for these so-called special immigrant visas. Uh, we've added about 50 people here in Washington, the State Department, uh, to help do that. We want to make sure that anyone who's helped us, uh, we are making good on our obligation to help them.
0: U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken, thank you so much for joining me. Appreciate it.
1: Thanks very much. Good to be with you.
0: And President Biden will take questions from reporters live this hour. We will bring that to you when it happens. One topic he could be asked about is his priorities here at home, which collectively face an uphill path in a 50-50 Senate, as progressives say the party is losing patience. Well, joining me now to discuss that is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Democrat from New York. Thank you so much, Congresswoman, from joining, for joining me. So a group of five Republican, five Democratic senators is proposing trillion in an infrastructure compromise deal. $600 billion of that is new spending, they say. No tax hikes to pay for it. Uh, Would you vote yes or no on that package if it comes before you in the House? You
3: know, I think um, from what we've seen so far and particularly the lack of climate action as well, I think adding um, to the severe lowering of our scope and scale and what we're seeking to do on ambition... I I doubt it, frankly, in the current uh, state of that proposal. And I think one of the things that's really important to communicate is that this isn't just $1.7 trillion. Um, This is about an overall investment spread out over anywhere between eight to 10 years, uh, which is a very, very low amount of money. It's not going to create the millions of union jobs that we need in this country, particularly to recover from the pandemic. Um, And it's not going to get us closer to meeting our climate goals, which are crucially important at this point in time.
0: As you well know, Democrats have three votes to spare in the House. So if the White House comes to you, if Democratic leaders come to you and say, this is the best you're going to get right now, would you and fellow progressives still say no to this?
3: Well, I think the thing is is that this isn't the best that we can get, and I do think that we need to talk about the elephant in the room, uh, which is Senate Democrats, which are blocking crucial items in a Democratic agenda um, for very, I think, uh, for reasons that I don't think hold a lot of water. And for folks saying, okay, you know, we need, where are you going to get these fifty votes? I think we really need to start asking some of these Democratic senators where they plan on getting sixty votes. Um, these 10 Republican senators, that there's a theory that we're going to get support for that out there, um, I think is, is, is a claim that doesn't really hold water, particularly when we can't even get uh, 10 senators to support a January 6th commission. Yeah, no, I hear and you so generally think that the speaking, argument that we,
0: but on this particular bill, they have five. And, you know, my understanding is that it is possible if everything comes together, they could get 10. So just on infrastructure.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think then the question that we have to make is that there's a fork in the road, which is, do we settle for much less and an infrastructure package that has been largely designed by Republicans um, in order to get 60 votes? Or can we really transform this country, create millions of union jobs, revamp our power grid, get people's uh, you know, bridges fixed and schools rebuilt? with 51 or 50 uh, Democratic votes. And I think the argument that we need to make here is that it's worth going it alone if we can do more for working people in this country. You know, with 50 votes, we have the potential to lower the age of Medicare eligibility so that more people can be covered and guaranteed to their right to health care, as opposed to, you know, 60 votes where we do very, very little. And the scope of that is defined by a Republican minority that has not been elected to lead.
0: So let's talk about one of the specific issues uh, that is blocked in the Senate right now, and that is voting rights. Uh, The House, including you, passed expansive voting rights legislation. That was back in March. Uh, Senate Democrats can't force a vote on it because— Virginia, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin doesn't support that particular bill. He also doesn't support what you're suggesting, which is gutting the filibuster. I want our viewers to listen to something that you said about all that this past week.
3: H.R. 1 stands up against lobbyists and dark money. And I would reckon to think that this is probably just as much a part of Joe Manchin's calculus as anything else. Because when it comes to this bipartisan argument, I got to tell you,
0: I don't buy it. What exactly did you mean by that? Are you saying Joe Manchin's opposition is because he wants to keep political donations flowing?
3: Well, you know, I think that um, I think that when we talk about opposition to H.R. 1 being just about voting rights, we aren't telling the entire story. H.R. 1 has sweeping lobbying reforms, and I, I believe that you know, we have the influence of big money that impacts not just one party, but both parties in the United States Congress. And I do believe that um, that, that old way of politics uh, has absolutely an influence in Joe Manchin's thinking and the way he navigates uh, the body. I mean, the way the things that he cites, like this, this, I think, romanticism of a bipartisanship is about an era of Republicans that simply do not exist anymore. And I also believe that, um, that the opposition to big money and dark money, you know, you have the Koch brothers and uh, associated organizations from the Koch brothers really doing victory laps about uh, Joe, Manson, Joe Manchin's opposition to the filibuster. I think that it's uh, pretty open that these groups exert a lot of influence, uh, as much as, and as much influence as they can on members of Congress. And I think that. Um, You know, that that the older school way of accepting the role of lobbyists in Washington absolutely has a role in Joe Manchin thinking.
0: I want to ask about what's going on at the Justice Department. Uh, The attorney general, Merrick Garland, gave a speech on Friday talking about protecting voting rights. But. The Justice Department, again, the Biden Justice Department, is under fire on a number of fronts. Gag orders against companies and journalists that are continuing uh, defending anti-LGBTQ laws, trying to step in on a lawsuit against President Trump and shielding some Russia investigation information from public. What do you make of all that?
3: Yeah, and, uh, you know, in addition to all of the suits that you had just mentioned, The Biden DOJ also decided that they were going to pursue uh, action on arguing in court for U.S. citizens who reside in Puerto Rico to have lower eligibility for Social Security um, than their counterparts, U.S. citizens in the continental United States, essentially uh, advancing second-class citizenship uh, and continuing second-class citizenship for Puerto Ricans on the island. And so... I think uh, the actions of Biden's DOJ has been extremely concerning. Uh, And it's not just on the actions on gag orders, which is also extremely concerning. But across the board, I don't believe that, um, you know, while I believe that the emphasis on voting rights is appreciated, we aren't seeing a transformational DOJ that I think people have been looking forward to. And that is something that that deserves a lot more questions.
0: Uh, I want to ask about uh, top Democratic House leaders and a dozen of your Jewish Democratic colleagues uh, issued a statement criticizing uh, your friend and, and colleague Ilhan Omar, Congresswoman from Minnesota, for what some Democrats said was a, quote, offensive and misguided remark that they say equated the U.S. and Israel with Hamas and Taliban terrorist organizations. She later clarified, saying she was not doing that. I want you, our viewers, to read what you tweeted in response. You said, pretty sick and tired of the constant vilification, intentional mischaracterization, and public targeting of Ilhan Omar coming from our caucus. They have no concept for the danger they put her in by skipping private conversations and leaping to fueling targeted news cycles around her. First question is, what exactly did your fellow Democrats mischaracterize? And are you saying that they are to blame for some threats against her? Well, you know, I think, um, I believe that
3: her comments were absolutely mischaracterized. She was very clearly uh, speaking about the ICC investigations, which name these four actors in two suits. Um, and they name them in context of events that happened in Afghanistan, with the United States and the Taliban, and in Palestine with with Hamas and uh, and the government of Israel, and you know I think that to say that, and I, be- I believe that to assert that she was equating these two entities when she was speaking about the ICC investigations in which all four parties are being investigated for investigated for instances of war crimes, uh, I you know I believe to sit to, to assert that they that. This was in it, equating these two, I believe, was not, uh, it, it was not a generous interpretation whatsoever. Um, and we know that uh, you know, these very intense news cycles, which, by the way, started, this whole hubbub started with right-wing uh, news outlets taking what she said out of context. And when we feed into that, it adds legitimacy to a lot of this kind of right-wing vitriol. It absolutely kind of increases um, that that target. And as someone who has experienced that, uh, you know, it's it's very difficult to communicate um, the scale and how dangerous, you know, that that is. And so I think, as you know, as Speaker Pelosi said, we are putting this behind us. And I believe that we will ultimately come together as a caucus.
0: Before I let you go, I want to ask about uh, the Supreme Court. There poised to hear several blockbuster cases in the next term, voting rights, gun control, abortion. Uh, Your fellow Democrat, Mondaire Jones, says 82-year-old Justice Stephen Breyer should retire so that President Biden and Senate Democrats can fill his seat with a younger liberal successor. Do you think that Justice Breyer should step down after this term?
3: Well, you know, I believe um I believe Representative Jones has a point, and we have had very difficult experiences with making, I believe, the opposite mistake. And um, especially if Senate Democrats are not going to pass reforms on h r one, we cannot rely solely on on a wish of winning elections, um particularly in the Senate. Uh, when voting rights are under attack in Georgia, Arizona, um, and and Texas, across the country. And if we're not going to pass H.R. 1 with the preemptive clauses that can roll some of that uh, voter suppression attacks back, yeah, I believe that we should protect our Supreme Court. And I thought that should absolutely be a consideration.
0: So just to be clear, you do think that Justice Stephen Breyer should retire at the end of this term?
3: Um. You know, I, 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 it's something I'd, I'd think about, but I, I would probably lean towards yes. Um, but yes, you're asking, you're asking me this question, so I would, just, I would give more thought to it, but, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm inclined to say yes.
0: Okay. After you give more thought to it, give me a call. We'll, we'll make sure to get that, uh, get that on the air. Okay. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. I appreciate it.
3: Thank you so much, of course. Thank you, Dina.
0: And thank you so much for spending part of your Sunday with us. Stay with CNN for the very latest on President Biden's trip overseas. Next up is the NATO summit in Brussels. And on Wednesday, special coverage of President Biden's face-to-face meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin. That will be in Geneva. The news here on CNN continues next.